Hello, wonderful listeners. Hard as it is to believe, we are now well into 2023. And I'm so happy to have you here again. We're starting the year off so great. We looked back at 2022 and we looked at some dynastic beginnings to start the year. And then last week we had the wonderful Jenna Holman join us. And now, as I'm thinking about 2023, I'm sort of thinking about this as the year of Shakespeare, because the first folio or first collection of what was considered, quote, all of Shakespeare's plays was printed 400 years ago this year. So this is the year of Shakespeare for me. And I thought we'd maybe spend some time today talking a little bit about Shakespeare and the first folio. And if you happen to be listening to this in January of 2023, I want to invite you to come inside Shakespeare with me and my program with Smithsonian Associates on the 28th of January. Lots of information on my website, also on smithsonianassociates.org. So please join us if you can. We're going to have a lot of fun with Shakespeare that day. But to give you a little bit of information about Shakespeare in the first folio, I want to talk to you just a little bit about the context of the time and the folio itself. So in Shakespeare's time, authors were a pretty small part of the process of producing a play. They really weren't very important or considered to be very important. So once a playwright sold a play to his company, that was it. His work, and I have to say it was a his work, was kind of done and his rights effectively ended. In Shakespeare's time, and in his case, his income didn't come primarily from selling plays or acting in plays. Once he was able to be a shareholder in the company, that's when he really started making some money, because then he got a cut of ticket prices, and that's where the money was to be made. So when his plays were printed, he didn't make anything. There was no such thing as authorial rights. By the time of his death in 1616, about half of his plays, the known plays, had been printed in what was called then a quarto format, which was like a small paperback today. It was considered to be almost um, temporary, disposable, just a short thing and, and not very lasting necessarily. Some have survived, maybe a lot haven't survived. But in any case, Seven years after his death, a couple of his friends and theater buddies, John Hemming and Henry Condell, collected 36 of Shakespeare's plays and arranged to have them all published together. Now, the original title was Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies, but we usually refer to it as the first folio. Folio refers to the large size of paper used, much, much larger than those quartos that were published before. And this was more expensive paper. Typically, it was a longer lasting item. And the subtitle, quote, published according to the true original copies was a statement by Hemming and Condell that this was the version that was, quote, really Shakespeare. So, a lot of the plays had been published in different versions. For example, Hamlet had two different quartos out there, and one of them was called the bad quarto. It was thought that rather than the um, a, a, a printer having anything 
original or any part of Shakespeare's original writing that maybe some less than stellar printers sent people into the plays to write down and just remember and recreate as much as they could. And then these printers would publish that quarto. These were considered bad or, you know, not reliable. There were also good quartos that had been published or printed from original text or something that had come from Shakespeare, a member of the company, maybe a prompt book. But in any case, there were good quartos, there were bad quartos. And what Hemming and Condell decided to do was gather up the good quartos. Apparently, they still had some access to Shakespeare's original work, and they gathered all that up. Now, for 18 of those 36 plays there had been no quartos published. In other words, for half of the plays, without the first folio, we wouldn't have them. They may not have survived. The vast majority of plays created during the early modern period did not survive. We see references to them. We don't know what they are. So here are just some of the plays we would not have without the first folio. Antony and Cleopatra, As You Like It, The Comedy of Errors, Henry VI, Part 1. We would have Parts 2 and 3, but not Part 1. Henry VIII, Julius Caesar, Macbeth, Measure for Measure, Taming of the Shrew, The Tempest, Twelfth Night, all of those and more would not exist without the first folio. So it's really an important document. Now, interestingly, a couple of plays that are considered to at least have been partly written by Shakespeare toward the end of his career, we know he was collaborating a lot, are not included in the first folio, although they do show up in subsequent folios. There's a second and a third. So Pericles and Two Noble Kinsmen are not in the first folio, even though they are considered to be Shakespeare's plays. Now, there are uh, a few other plays, three other plays that are not included in the first folio for maybe different reasons. Edward III, there's a legend, perhaps it was written by Shakespeare, perhaps not. There's really not a definitive knowledge about that or, or definite evidence of that, but there might have been a Shakespeare play called Edward III. We also know of a couple of plays identified as Shakespeare plays, Cardinio and Love's Labors One, which was a companion to Love's Labors Lost. Those are not in the first folio and in fact are not known at all anymore. So that those are examples of what happened if plays hadn't been printed in quartos or quartos hadn't survived and they were not included in the first folio. So it was Hemming and Condell that first really grouped the plays and printed them as a group of comedies, histories, and tragedies. And they appear that way in the catalog page, what we would call a table of contents. And here's what they are. There are 14 comedies, 10 histories, and 11 tragedies. And so that makes 35 plays. But wait, because I originally said there are 36 plays in the first folio. So what's not listed on the catalog and why? Well, it turns out that over the years, as these quarto copies had been printed for Hemming and Condell and their publisher, Jaggard, to be able to include those plays that had already been written and printed in the first folio, they had to have permission, not from the author, nobody cared about him, 
but from the printers. So Jaggard, who was the printer, was well-placed and able to call in some favors from some colleagues and do some haggling with other printers. He knew how to get that taken care of, but he ran into a problem with Henry Wally, who had published Troilus and Cressida back in 1609. And Wally was really hard to convince to allow Jaggard to include that play of Shakespeare's in this folio. And we think that early copies of the first folio might have only had 35 plays and matched the catalog. But over time, they were able to convince Henry Wally and Jaggard was able to include Troilus and Cressida. But the catalog pages had already been printed and things were not reprinted in those days. Printing was not an art, not a science, sort of haphazard, and things just didn't get reprinted. During the print run, if they found errors, they'd correct them from then on, but they wouldn't go back and pull pages with errors and get rid of them. So the catalog, even though it's missing a play, was not reprinted. That's why you won't find Troilus and Cressida on the catalog or the table of contents, but in most cases, you will find it in the first folio. Now, one other thing important, and there are a few other things, but one of the other important things in the first folio is a verified, one of very, very few, maybe two or three, verified pictorial depictions of Shakespeare. So we know that Hemming and Condell um, commissioned uh, an engraver to make a portrait of Shakespeare. They hired um, Drewshout, Martin Drewshout, to do this, and then they approved that image, and it was included in the first folio. So that image, which we've all seen of Shakespeare with the receding hairline and then the longish hair over his ears, and it almost seems like his head's sitting on a platter the way that collar comes out, that was approved. People who knew him said, yes, use that. So it may have looked like him. It's an engraving. It's not great art, but it does seem to get the job done and it was approved by them. So after 400 years, that representation of Shakespeare is still one of the key ways to have some idea of what Shakespeare looked like. Now, there are other bits of text included in the first folio before we get to the actual page, to the actual plays, rather. So facing the title page is a poem by fellow playwright Ben Johnson, who's praising Shakespeare and instructing readers to, quote, look not on his picture, but his book to find the wit and glory of Shakespeare and his works. So he may be saying, okay, picture not so great, but look at the plays themselves. There's a note from Hemming and Condell to the readers addressed specifically to the, quote, great variety of readers. And right off the start, it says that this book is for, quote, from the most able to him that can but spell. In other words, Shakespeare was considered to be available for everybody. It's not just for the elite, for the wealthy, for the fancy, for the super educated. It's for everyone. And that's something that I wish was more believed today. It really is available. The language really can make sense to everyone. And so right from the start, that's the message. It's from everyone. Another thing in this little To the Great Variety of Readers passage is something telling people to enjoy the work and appreciate the work, but quote, to buy it first. 
So there is a little sales pitch embedded right in the text. Now, Hemming and Condal supervised the printing of the first folio. Again, not the organized process it is today. So Edward Blount and William Jaggard were part of this publishing syndicate and they took over the process of printing. And then Jaggard's son, Isaac, took over. It's actually Isaac's name that's on that page, that title page. But there's another poem from Johnson in those title pages, in those original first pages. And it says this, he's full of praise for Shakespeare, quote, thou art a monument without a tomb and art alive while thy book doth live. And we have wits to read and praise to give. He goes on to coin the phrase, sweet swan of Avon, and says, sweet swan, sweet swan of Avon, what a sight it were to see thee in our waters yet appear, and take those flights upon the banks of Thames that so did take Eliza and our James, appealing to Queen Elizabeth and James I, and they're a reminder of them. So compositors who were actually doing the printing would set letter by letter, each line of text and spaces and some punctuation. Spelling, of course, in those days was changeable. And the compositors spell words like do or go and a lot of other words very differently. Even those two-letter words are sometimes spelled with an E on the end. So you can see which compositor may have, may have you know, set each page. And in a volume you owned, you might have had differences throughout in the way words are spelled. Um, things were set in groups of 12 pages at a time. And so they would estimate, oh, if I'm printing page one and page 12, those two pages would have been printed together. So they're estimating how much text would go in pages two through 11. And then they'd have to change how much spacing and some pages have lines really squeezed tightly together and other pages have lots of extra space because it just was reset every time they had to kind of be making it up as they went along. There are more than 900 pages in a complete first folio. So the chance of error was very high. And since pages were printed and then laid out to dry and then later gathered together, but not necessarily in any kind of order, each volume is unique. It's anticipated that probably about 750 copies were originally printed of the first folio. And there were idiosyncrasies throughout in the way words were spelled or in sometimes a line was left out because it couldn't be squeezed into the page. And so the compositor would just choose which line to leave out. So there were lots of opportunities for changes or differences from one folio to the next. And owners would sometimes write in the margins. There are notes from early owners. Sometimes an owner might have used a first folio with his family. There are first folios where there are drawings by children, you know, oh, here, just play on this page, draw this, here's a pen kind of thing. And so there are all kinds of things. Owners through the years used very interesting items as pay, as bookmarks between pages. I mean, sometimes we do that as well, but there are sort of rust indentations of a pair of scissors or a pair of eyeglasses sometimes. And so there are lots of different copies. And the Fulcher Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. has the largest collection of first folios in the world with 82 copies. And 
Each of those has its own story. No two of those 82 copies are exactly alike. And scholars say that no two copies of the first folios, all the ones we know about, are exactly alike. So Mr. Folger's favorite was the one he deemed Folger copy number one. And this is the Vincent copy because it was a gift from William Jaggard, the original printer, to his friend Augustine Vincent. And there is a little dedication line written in it. And it is the tallest first folio. Every time a folio was bound and then rebound, the covers, the original covers, we don't have very many of them that have survived for 400 years. So often a copy would be rebound and the pages are trimmed just slightly as it's rebound. Well, this one, this Vincent folio is the tallest one because it's not been rebound very often. And so those pages are very much as they were when they were originally printed. So there are about 233 copies today. I have to tell you, that number has changed in the last decade because in 2014, there was a book in a French library. It had been there since the 1790s. It was just gathering dust on a shelf and it was identified in 2014 as a previously unknown copy of the first folio. Then, just two years later, another copy was discovered at Mount Stewart on the Isle of Bute in Scotland. Records show that that copy was acquired by Isaac Reed in 1786. So these new, um, surprising, unexpected discoveries of first folios have brought that number to 233, but there may be more out there. Now, some copies of the first folio have had quite an exciting life. So in 1998, a copy of the first folio was stolen from the library at Durham University. And there were other books stolen. There were seven total books stolen and manuscripts. There was a translation of the New Testament, a first edition of Beowulf, part of a poem by Chaucer. So, and this first folio. So these works go missing. And 10 years later... This man walks into the Folger Shakespeare Library and says he has an old Shakespeare book. He thought the library might be interested in buying from him. He was convinced by the people at the Folger to leave the volume there for authentication. And the experts were immediately sort of on edge and on guard because there were some indicators that this book had been damaged recently, that the cover had been ripped off, that some pages had been ripped out. And the story that this individual told about how he came to have the book didn't really match the state the book was in. And so they started doing some research, brought in other experts. And when I worked there, I talked to some of the people who were involved in this. It was determined that this book that showed up 10 years later was that copy that had been stolen from the Durham Library. All the copies of the first folio are documented in a census. So all those idiosyncrasies, the way words are spelled, the misspellings, maybe a slit or a cut on a particular page, all those identifying marks are documented. So it was easy eventually to prove that that was the Durham copy and that it had been stolen. So police in the U.S. and the U.K. and Scotland Yard got involved and eventually it was returned to Durham University in 2010. And the staff was so happy to have it back. And they said, it will be wonderful to be able to include the first folio in our displays again. So it was very much like this book had had quite an exciting little adventure 
unfortunately really had been damaged, but it was now back. So again, perhaps you're thinking, oh, maybe I'd like to get my hand on one of those first folios. Can you buy one? Well, a couple of first folios have come up for auction lately, calling it the quote, first complete copy of Shakespeare's first folio to come on the market in a generation. Christie's Auction House sold a copy in 2020 for nearly $10 million. So the publicity stated that there were only five copies of the first folio to remain in private hands or private ownership. That number changes quite often, but that's what the Christie's thing said. Um, This one was included. That's one of the five. It was in the auction. And before that, no first folio had come on the market since 2001. So it had been a really long time and it sold for almost, again, almost $10 million. And Christie said that was the most expensive work of literature ever auctioned. Now, um, there was another first folio that became available in 2022. And this one was sold by Sotheby's. And this copy was described, and the first folio in general was described, as the most important book in English literature. And with the King James Bible, which was published just a few years earlier, one of the two greatest books of the English language. That was the way Sotheby's described this first folio. It contained annotations, which can set the book apart. Again, previous owners might have written something in the margin on about 34 pages. And it was described as one of, quote, 18 remaining copies held by private collectors. So again, that number changes. People say they know of a volume or know of someone who knows of a someone who knows of a volume. So that number is a little bit fluid, shall we say. So this copy sold for two and a half million dollars. So the number of known copies continues to change. The number of maybe there's something else out there copy continues to change a little bit too. So I have to say, check your attic. Now, if we go back to 1623, to those two friends, Hemings and Condell, those two friends of Shakespeare, members of his company, and they decided to collect and print his plays, you know, most of the plays of the time don't survive. This effort really did preserve the work of their friend, William Shakespeare. I'm sure they never could have imagined that 400 years later, these volumes would be sold for all this money and so sought after and so cherished, described as the greatest work of literature, one of the greatest pieces of literature. Um, It's just amazing how these plays continue to capture our imagination. And so why is it that Shakespeare continues 400 years, 400 plus years later? So here are a few things I'm really excited to share that I have going on and that I'm going to keep talking about. And I'd love to hear from you about um, with Shakespeare. So some of you know that I took my first transatlantic cruise a few weeks ago. I was able to travel on and speak on the Queen Mary 2, traveling from New York to Southampton. It was absolutely a dream come true. And one of the really, really exciting things that happened is I was able to meet with and chat with members of the Guildford Shakespeare Company, or GSC. 
they were on board performing and taking us, quote, all a bard with Shakespeare. So there was a Shakespeare walk and a workshop, and it was just so great to see so many people on board getting excited about Shakespeare, a collection of all different kinds of people and this marvelous, marvelous group. Now, sadly, I don't live in Surrey, England, and so I'm not able to go to their productions, but I am telling you, if you are anywhere near them, go check them out. I'm, I'm going to have to figure out a way to get there myself. So the GSC makes art and Shakespeare available to everyone. And I have seen that in action. It's marvelous. They break down barriers to staging productions. They have non-traditional places like a cruise ship. And in the future, like, and no, I'm not kidding, a 747 Boeing jet. So imagine that. Um, they are also some of the kindest, most generous, and amazingly talented people. Uh, it was an honor to see them in action on the high seas. And so this is what I love about Shakespeare. It brings all kinds of people together. And it, yes, it can be done in a great production on a grand stage with beautiful costumes and all kinds of extras, or it can be done in a little community theater or on a ship, in a little corner of a ship, or on a 747. Shakespeare can be everywhere. And I am so excited to be in D.C. and have my beloved Folger Shakespeare Company and the Shakespeare Theater Company right here. And I'm also excited about all the community-based Shakespeare and smaller Shakespeare companies. It's it's just exemplary. And I think the GSC is exactly like one of my favorite lines, though they be but little they are fierce. And speaking of fierce, I just want to share with you really quickly something I'm really excited about that I'm doing, which is adding a shakeup conversations component to my business model. So imagine for a moment, I'm just going to take you on a little journey. Imagine for a moment that you are facing a really tough or a really high stakes conversation. Maybe it's one of those things you know you just have to get right. So it might be a conversation with your teenager about some behavior that needs to change, or a conversation with your aging parents about it not being safe for them to drive anymore, or a conversation with a neighbor about a long standing dispute about a tree and whose yard it's on and who needs to be cleaning up that has grown and festered. And last time you tried to talk about it resulted in a shouting match. These are the kinds of conversations that we have in our everyday lives. And as I have talked to people about these and, and other conversations, like maybe you want to be returning to the workplace after COVID on your terms instead of somebody else's. All these conversations are all around us. And whatever it is that makes that conversation difficult or really, really important, I think you can find strategies in Shakespeare to help you have the best conversations of your life. So think about this. How does Henry V know exactly what to say to his troops before they face the French at Agincourt? Why does Everything King Lear tries to set up completely fall apart and backfire. And the list goes on. The thing is, everything Shakespeare created, the world's like Hamlet's court and Macbeth's castle and the scary words with the word woods with the witches in them. 
and Henry V's battlefield, and Beatrice and Benedict's hiding places in Much Ado. All of that is accomplished through conversations. So Shakespeare shows us what works and solves problems and creates opportunities and builds relationships. And he shows us what does the opposite. And we can use those strategies to change everything, to have the kinds of conversations that can change everything in our lives today. So I am so excited because Shakespeare is all around us in everything we're doing. And 2023 is the year of Shakespeare. It's the anniversary of the publication of the first folio. And I want you to know I am so excited to celebrate history and Shakespeare. Shake all of that up with you together. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about the year of Shakespeare. And looking ahead to Valentine's Month, we have some really fun historic relationships to take a peek at. I can't wait to do that and to keep shaking up history with you.